0: you <laughs> and welcome back to another episode of uh, Quick Thoughts with uh, Status Al-Wada. Again, we're here today to talk to Layla Shirin Sa'er, also known as Vijay Om Amal. We've spoken to her before about so many different developments, uh, but uh, we're lucky to have her once more to help us contemplate and think about and theorize and re-theorize the state of social media in and on the Middle East. Welcome back, Layla.
1: Thank you, Adil. Um,
0: I'm not going to give you a proper introduction because you are basically <laughs> a staple with status. Uh, and there's a really nice and amazing and comprehensive bio that's right next to this interview that people can look up. But uh, you are... Uh, a professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and also the founder of Archief. So we'll be talking about a whole lot of things. Uh, But this is, again, a quick thoughts. We have another very extensive interview with uh, with Leila that will come up in the fall of 2017. But for the time being, we want to rehash where we've come from as far as discussing social media in the Middle East and where we might be heading. So thank you again for agreeing to talk to us, Leila.
1: Thank you, Ada. Thank you. And, and uh, status is a staple for me too. Staple and bread and peanut butter and all of that.
0: Great, Yeah, it's bread and butter. So I wanted to give people a little bit of a flashback of what some of the conversations that we've had before. Uh, we've spoken to you with every issue of, of status uh, to discuss what's trending in the region. And you've given us a very, very sound and nuanced reading of how Uh, online communities in and around and about the Middle East converse about their political circumstances, their social uh, situations, and things of that sort. But uh, we've also been really quite mindful of how some of the changes that are happening to these online spaces are forcing us to rethink how we theorize them. And it seems to me that this is the direction that you're taking your work. There's a strong necessity for that. Uh, Do you mind filling us in on how you're beginning to think about these online spaces and and social media and how we can challenge our preconceived notions and understandings of them?
1: Yeah, thanks for that. That's a very, very interesting um, introduction. I just would say that it's not just changes. It's not really changes in the virtual world its practices in the in in our real world that are changing and so it's not just it's our practices and then of course our formations our identity formations social political um and our data formations and maybe that's something to think about so i i guess you know it's tough because we're i'm in a moment of a real pivotal moment in um my research theoretically and practically Um, I I would just just to go back a little bit when Twitter and and Facebook first emerged, people, social media users in the Middle East adopted the medium to push for political change. And this, you know, captured the imagination of a wide audience. Um, They also captured the imagination of the public and the Arab uprisings of 2011 were coined Twitter revolutions. uh, Arab activists uh, became a model for like what came next, Occupy Wall Street, from Ferguson to Palestine, Umbrella Revolution, actually maybe not in that order. I would say, you know, Occupy Wall Street, Umbrella Revolution in Hong Kong, 12M and 15M in Spain, and more recently from Ferguson to Palestine. In fact, I think that the Black Lives Matter um, movement as an online digital um, campaign has made a huge impact on this entire sphere. So anyhow, the dramatic uptick of virtual and on the ground revolutionary activism has also inspired corporate interests. So you hear all this conversation about big data capitalism, right? And government entities like the NSA to hijack or monitor social media for a variety of purposes, including surveillance, as well as monitoring um, consumer behavior basically social media platforms in recent years have been radically transformed by underserved publics and governments alike. And the Arab world has been like a ground zero for some of the most dramatic and influential changes. But the problem now is that, is is how do we analyze this system in this new environment? How do, you know, yes, there's been a change and now um, it's not necessarily just this revolutionary ground. It is revolutionary in the sense that it's um, dr- it will dramatically change events. But the challenge now is to updating our our data formations because the data analytics and the visualizations that we produced and even in the recent pra- past they don't address the structure and practices of security states of 2017. Um, and so, in, ha- in thinking about how to redress this situation. I'm considering a feminist media praxis approach. There's a whole femtech community of scholars and activists and and techies who've been writing about different methodologies to understand our data and their formations and how they affect our lives. And so anyhow, Anne Balsamo, who is my um, PhD, was my PhD um, advisor. So she explains, this is who I learned it from, she explains that dig, digital technology and the industry itself often presumes and thus renders invisible the presence of the white male programmer. And so to render the invisible visible, both in relation to underrepresented voices and views from below as well as above, I, I want to bring together um, these femtech activists in the Middle East and in, around the world. And I want to think about new ways of seeing so as to produce a sort of feminist media practice approach to our understanding of human rights. I'm teaching two classes that are affecting my approach or my, um, my new journey into trying to find a new methodology of data analytics and one class is femtech net or as I'm calling it femtech lab. And the students are, um, we are studying certain method. We're studying certain technologies, um, as such. And the technologies that we study are collectivity as a technology. We study distributed networks as a technology. We study practice as methodology, as a technology. We study solidarity as a technology we study public pedagogy as a technology. So if we start thinking from that rubric, what what might open up? And then the other class I'm teaching that I think is helping lend uh, another perspective is um, Algorithms and Culture, which I co-taught last year. It's a graduate seminar. I co-taught with Dr. Amr Labedi, who's in computer science. He's a, he's a professor who studies databases, pretty much. <laughs> so our, our, our interests naturally collided. And he's also, um, he was also very uh, interested in, um, the work I do with our and that those data analytics. And so we decided to teach this class called algorithms and culture, um, where half of the students were graduate students from, um, computer science and the other half were in the humanities and social sciences. And some of the premises that we our our goals for the seminar were to demystify the algorithm. And to offer in place a theory of understanding through like a humanistic inquiry of the logic of cultural objects and to think about the, the algorithm as a cultural object. And so some of our questions that we that guided our inquiry in the seminar were um, that, the, you know, the term algorithm predates the digital computer by thousands of years. Right. So it's etymology is traceable to an how from, I think, the ninth century. Um, and we could even go back to the ancient Greeks. So why, how can we understand this explosion of discourse around algorithms in popular culture in the last decade? I mean, if you look up, if you look uh, up articles on algorithm or algorithmic culture, they're all going to be in the last actually three, four years, in fact, not just decade. So what does it, what does it mean to study algorithms as a myth or a narrative, ideology or a power? And how can these approaches, um, contribute back to the co- concepts with the uh, questions with computer scientists and data science and big data initiatives. So, you know, and then, you know, the other questions is about algorithmic bias. Training data encodes biases, data collection, feedback loops, subpopulation, uh, find an area with, a, with crime, send police there, arrest more people, more crime stats, <laughs> you know, Subpopulations have, ve- have observed very different trends. Minority populations necessarily represent smaller portions of data. So how can we measure algorithmic bias if people are, are biased at any rate? Right? So where is the bias coming from? And then algorithms are pervading our daily life. We, it, we experience their reach and impact almost anywhere, not just while working at, at a computer. How can we better understand the, the far-flung domains are being reshaped by, by algorithms? And what are the consequences of the big data and the quantified self? You know, how many Fitbits are you wearing or do, do you guys wear? You know? So, I mean, I think so. These are some of the questions because research in all fields um, in, is increasingly concerned with and inseparable from the technologies and cultures producing information, algorithms, and large scale data sets. So, whether studying, designing, or using algorithms, Researchers need to understand how their questions intersect with the logics of automation and scale underpinning networked com- computational platforms. And I think that that's just um, I'm calling for some sort of critical software studies, you know, that could then also um, help us in all kinds of fields, not just in computer science or media studies.
0: It sounds to me like this project is uh, is one that is very much grounded in um, sort of a disruptive politics, uh, one that, you know, driven by um, sort of a, an active effort to decolonize the, the canon and the methodology, uh, and also kind of a recognition of... of the embedded and invisible patriarchy uh, that is part and parcel of the practice thus far, but also um, sort of a recognition of the sort of the humanistic potentialities. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, Extremely interesting, but it also it sounds to me like it's uh, disruptive in a very structural <laughs> way of even the, the the tools and instruments that we've had right. at our disposal thus far. Can you talk to us a little bit about how this kind of uh-huh. disruption mean might mean kind of a, either a reset or a reboot or kind of a, a change in the way things work? If
1: you go to org right now, you'll see a plant um and and uh, we have taken we have officially removed our old um ways of analyzing the data from the public we are in the process actually right right now it's funny you say this we're in the process right now of of releasing another a new uh 5.0 actually um and that is so part of these questions came up Um, and we just couldn't bring ourselves to, it's a lot of work to build these tools. (laughs) And if you're building, you're putting in all your effort to build tools that are not producing any analysis that's worth anything for, you know, it's not worth your, um, and your interests. I'm not interested in consumer behavior, right? So, um, so we had to take down the, the old system and a new one will resurrect, um, it's going to be bigger and better. No, I don't know that bigger and better. It's definitely going to be better. I am very excited about the next version, actually. Um, it's going to be able to – it's open now to several um, – to have several different collections. So it's not going to be one archive. There's going to be many.
0: So it's proliferating, and it's – as has been the case historically, it, it would um, avoid uh, the proprietary impulses of, of kind of neoliberal corporatism. Uh, which right. is so embedded in in this uh, in this industry, uh, and will kind of rethink beyond think or think beyond kind of big data analytics uh, in in the way that they've been conceived nowadays, which is yeah. very refreshing.
1: I hope so. Well, the, so the step one will be soon. You will see the new archive, and then I'm also working on a,
0: a VR um, piece, which I'll tell you more about in the fall. <laughs> So does that mean that we have to – would you advise for those of us who are not necessarily either in the digital humanities or are working on algorithmic cultures or computation or any of those uh, areas that help us kind of uh, decipher or even kind of interject and challenge, um, would you you advise us to be more – cautious and uh and and also vigilant when it comes to um you know the kinds of big data analytics that are being sort of cascaded on us on a fairly regular basis like what's what's a good kind of practice for for us as as sort of humanist um citizens
1: that's a really good question that's a really good question so how do you read data visualizations all right so if you think about it like there's every medium has a Theory of how to properly analyze it. We know how to read films, we know how to read poems and novels and short novels, etc. So, I mean, how to read data visualizations um, are very important to think about the data source, the quantity of data that's being looked at, the choices that they made, like what was the original data set um, from. So, in other words, any. Big data analysis is going to have several scopes and definitions. So, what were those choices? Did they make? So, this was a talk I was giving on the myth of the Muslim nation and a response to Islamophobia and Donald Trump here, local, here at UCSB. And I was talking about, you know, I wanted to to interrupt the way we look at maps and how people read these visualizations. So, for example, The Independent made this, uh, published this. It's a support for ISIS in Muslim countries. First of all, why are we looking for the support instead of perhaps the opposite? That's one question I'll just ask. The first thing to do is look at the very bottom. And you see, one thing's nice, it's, a, it's, com- it's creative Commons, which means it's just great, but they de- that they want this thing to travel and they want a lot of people to see it. It's from Pew Research. So if you want to consider who is Pew Research, what are their, polit- What you know, different think tanks have different... Um, political um, agendas and whatnot. Um, also the Washington Institute and the, and zombies so done by the independent. But then what I find really interesting is you start looking at it and really think critically, why did they make these choices? So it's Syria to let, so what are these 20? Are these the 22? They're Muslim countries. So wh- how many are they? One, two, three, four, I don't know. I can count them. Is the, Are they leaving anything out? And there's 0% of of support for ISIS in Iran or Lebanon, which I would really doubt that there's zero anywhere. And then it's interesting that the highest number is 21 percent. It makes it look like Syria is like, oh my God, look! If you just glance at this, right? If you're not someone who's reading this carefully, and you just your eyes are looking over 10 million things on a on a web page, and what, what what's going to stick out? Support for ISIS and Syria's big phallic plunging bar graph is going the furthest okay it's got a very big bar graph but if you read it it's 21 percent in a country that's in the middle of a very serious war how on earth can you compare that to another country like left i mean how can you make these comparisons like Burkina Faso, how can you put Syria and Burkina Burkina Faso on the same map like this? What are you doing? So you really need to take take that apart. Read, all, uh, you know. And then they just the thing is, it gets reduced and visual as a visual. Someone who makes a uh, visual media, it's really powerful. And artists take a lot of time to think about how, what they're creating visually, and it only takes a second to consume it. It's dangerous. It's kind of like the tweet. So I don't know. My, I'm glad you asked that question. I think that we, um, if, I don't think it takes science. You don't need to be good at math to read a chart. I think that we need to challenge, even if you are, are not a techie, you don't know anything about that stuff. You still need to challenge the information that comes to you and how it comes to you and think about the medium and be able to analyze the text in its own meat, in its, in its form, in its medium.
0: Extremely sound advice. And, and we'll show our listeners uh, a copy of that bar graph so that it's fairly yeah. obvious what you're describing, but this is, you're, 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 right on the mark and it's, uh, it's about really, it's about digital literacy and, but, but also the, the simple things like being able yeah. to kind of unpack the, the, uh, perhaps the, uh, the ideological, embedded ideological messaging that's that's right. part of these visualizations and what they're trying to communicate. Um, right. and, and also figuring out the political economic justifications, who's behind it, what they're doing with it, where do they expect it to go and what po- policy implications uh, this yeah, might have.
1: Right, right. All of that, all of that needs to be, that's, that's the work of, that's the work of academics.
0: That's what we do. Uh, Leila, once again, a really spectacular um, I- series of interventions that are both uh, incredibly timely and transformative. So we thank you for that. We're very much looking forward to our next conversation, where we yeah. really talk to you about your methodology and your epistemological approach to uh, to digital humanities moving forward. So until then, uh, this was uh, <laughs> a quick thoughts. Uh, with quick D- thoughts. Yeah, uh, with Leila. So thank you so much for your time and your status. Take care and talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.